Parker J. Palmer, founder and senior partner of the Center for Courage and Renewal, is a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He has reached millions worldwide through his nine books, and I've read four of them that are my favorites, A Hidden Wholeness, The Active Life, The Promise of Paradox, and Let Your Life Speak. Parker J. Palmer joins us today on Let the Music Play as we learn how to embrace paradox, how to move into our true lives, and what it feels like and what it means to live on the Mobius Strip. I'm Ashton Gustafson, and this is Let the Music Play. If we cling to effectiveness as the only standard of our work, then we're simply going to take on smaller and smaller tasks Mm -hmm. because they're the only ones that you can be effective with. Forget love, truth, and justice. They're too big. Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is where we chat about what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it means to make metaphorical music with our lives and our relationships and our careers. I am so excited today. Uh, A year ago, um, I picked up a book called Let Your Life Speak by Parker J. Palmer, and um, the entire book is highlighted from the first page to the last page. It was one of those books that uh, rattled me at the soul level, and then I just started reading everything else uh, that this gentleman has written from The Promise of Paradox, The Active Life, A Hidden Wholeness, and today we have him joining us today on Let the Music Play podcast, Parker J. Palmer. Parker, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ashton. Delighted to be with you. Well, like I said, uh, your words have definitely taken me, uh, taken me on an incredible journey these last 12 months. Um, we've got some questions to kind of walk through here, and, and hopefully we're going to weave in and out of many of the major ideas of these books. Um, but I always begin all of these dialogues with uh, individuals that I've looked up to and, and have read now. I always start with a question of, are there any morning or daily rituals uh, in your life that have consistently served you well over the years? Yes, there there are. Um, I might just explain, first of all, that for 30 years I've worked independently, right. spending half of my life uh, writing and the other half on the road talking, doing workshops and so forth. So uh, my daily commute is is basically uh, padding down the hall in my slippers into my <laughs> home office <laughs> and uh, and uh, sitting down in in my office. The, um, the 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 daily ritual involves getting up pretty early. I'm usually up by five, no later than six. Um, often with ideas on my mind, either that have percolated during sleep or. Um, or sleepless nights, mm-hmm. um, and but before I start writing, um, what I especially like to do is to read poetry. Mm. Um, poetry has uh, good poetry has yeah. served me well for a very long time. I read people like Mary Oliver yes. and uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins <clears throat> and Marge Piercy. Um, Stanley Kunitz, um, many, many, many others, William Stafford, uh, wonderful poets who who have this great quality of, of uh, looking at things sort of out of the corner of the eye. Mm. 
where, where you can see more than if you just run at things headlong. So I, I find that, that reading poetry kind of loosens my imagination and loosens my mind. And uh, from there, it's it's a matter of, uh, of sitting down to write, and um, yep. uh, I do that pretty consistently. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mary Oliver uh, has taken me on a few journeys myself. Um, I love that, how you start each day with poetry. Um, moving into, uh, you know, the first book that I cross paths with you of, of Let, Your, Let Your Life Speak, um, you, you broke down the idea in the word vocation. And, and I just want to read this excerpt here and then have you kind of riff a little bit and, and take us on a journey of really what you were getting at um, in this. But you wrote in the book, you said, vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it is truly about, quite apart from what I would like to be about, or my life will never represent anything real in the world no matter how earnest my intentions. That insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin for voice. Vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue. It means a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. That right there is just <laughs> huge and beautiful. Um, and I've heard you say before, it, it's you listening to what you're, not what you want to do with your life, but what your life wants to do with you. Um, mm. How, what practices have you found to listening to what your life wants to do with you? Yeah, it's, I, I would just add uh, to the general context for that quote, I suppose, is um, a big insight that came to me some years ago that I've really tried <clears throat> tried to track, which is that um, the most important things in life are not goals we achieve, but gifts that we receive. Oh, wow. That's and I, I think that once we put ourselves in the posture of of receiving gifts and then eventually of realizing that we can keep them alive only by passing them along. Mm. <clears throat> For me, that's that's what in the, in the old Shaker song is called the place just right. Um, and uh, I think that, that the quote you just read, you know, is, is a piece of that larger context. As to the, as to the how, we listen to what our lives are trying to tell us. In my case, uh, I think there are two big answers to that. Um, one is solitude. Mm -hmm. um, lots of solitude in in different settings and um, of different types. Um, as a writer, I spend a lot of time in solitude. Um, I'm When I'm writing, I'm kind of in dialogue with with my own inner voice, right. um, trying to listen to what we Quakers call the inner teacher, yep. um, and and learning more about what it has to say as as I write. I also find <clears throat> that solitude in nature is is an important piece of my life. Yeah. Um, walking in the woods or paddling a canoe on a lake. Um, these are things that, you know, put me in 
into a reflective um, inward space, and I, I learn a lot there. But I think at the same time, um, the paradoxical pole of solitude is community. Gotcha. And and we need community, which doesn't have to be a hundred people. It can be one or two other people mm-hmm. um, who who really know how to hear us into speech, which yeah. is a, a phrase I I have stolen from a wonderful theologian named Nell Morton, um, who, who will help us by listening deeply and by asking us honest, open questions. Um, help us sort out um, the, the important, the very important question of which voice we're listening to when we when we hear a voice within us. Yeah. You know, the truth is that while we all have an inner teacher, we all have an inner voice of truth. We have other voices as well. We have voices of fear. Yeah. We have voices of greed. Um, we have voices of bigotry. Um, we have voices of self-defense. Um, we have voices of ego and ego aggrandizement. I mean, the list is pretty long. And one has to use, I think, enormous care um, in sort of sifting and winnowing uh, what we're hearing from within and trying to discern where it's coming from. And uh, in my life, I don't, I don't know of any substitute for community in helping me uh, to do that. So uh, solitude between solitude and community, yeah. um, I find um, the, the kind of discernment that I'm talking about in, in Let Your Life Speak, uh, listening to my life telling me who I am, but, but making sure that that's, that's, as Quakers would say, the voice of the, of the inner teacher. Right. You know, one of my one of my heroes in, in the theological world, well, in the world at large, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. I'm sure many of your uh, listeners will be familiar with that Absolutely. name, this German theologian who, um, you know, was executed by the Nazis, um, and who who led a very remarkable life. And in his in his book called Life Together, um, he he writes this this uh, sentence about the paradox of solitude and community that uh, when I first read it, I thought, I need to remember this and I need to live by it. Hmm. So Bonhoeffer at one point in that book says, let the person who cannot be alone beware of being in community and let the person who cannot be in community beware of being alone. Um, I think it's a powerful yeah. sort of angular way of saying that solitude and community need each other. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's in that force field between the two that I, I at least do my best discernment. Yeah, for, force field's a good word for that. I was thinking that's kind of the space in between where you, you can tune into that divine song that's inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, wow, that's beautiful. Um Solitude and community, being in that space. Um, in that light, you've, and I would ask it this way. So, so your answer a little is that is that space also the space of contemplation? 
Um, yeah, I think so. I think it is. I, I think that, um, you know, these there are words like discernment and contemplation that, for me at least, are sort of distinctions without a difference, um, that, that we're talking essentially about the same thing, mm-hmm. or I am at least, when I use those two words. Right, and and I love how you defined contemplation. I'm not sure if it was in a book or maybe in your On Being uh, podcast with Krista Tippett that I heard you say, contemplation is any way you have of penetrating illusion and touching reality. Yes. I mean, that, yeah. that is huge. That was an amazing idea for me to hold on to. Well, thank you. I'm glad it is. And it, it was huge for me because um, I think that's from a book I wrote called uh, The Active Life. Okay. Um, and uh, it's uh, it, it was important to me um, uh, for a very particular reason. Um, I have a background as an activist. When, when I got out of graduate school with a Ph.D. from Berkeley, um, it was the end of the 60s. The cities were burning. Uh, my heroes had been assassinated, and having just received a Ph.D. in sociology, I decided that the best use for my uh, knowledge and skill, such as it was at the time, was not in the academy or in the classroom, but on the streets. Hmm. And so I went to Washington, D.C., and I became a community organizer working on issues of racial justice. Um, and and so, you know, any, any um, idea I had of living... <laughs> a monastic contemplative life, um, or a contemplative life defined by 24-7 quietude, went out the window um, because I felt called to this very engaged way of being uh, in a very very difficult and conflicted world. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote wrote the active life... um, to, to really explore the question, um, <clears throat> is might it be that contemplation is not limited to our normal ways of um, imaging it, so, which, which are sort of behind the cloister walls with our eyes closed, maybe sitting with our legs crossed and chanting a mantra right. or something of that sort, because... If it is, then that really puts the contemplative life out of reach of most people. And I decided that it absolutely, that contemplation absolutely was broader than its kind of quietistic um, definitions. And functionally, I think what all contemplation does is to help us penetrate illusion and touch reality. Mm-hmm. I, I've talked with many monks uh, in the monastery, and they've said, yeah, that's what, that's what we're attempting to do in here. Um, and as an activist, I began realizing that I was, that as a community organizer working on, on racism and racial justice, I was day by day penetrating my own illusions about myself and the world and touching reality in a way that was challenging, but edifying and and bracing and engaging. Um, You know, Gandhi, um, who was certainly 
uh, a world-class activist, titled his his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. Hmm. And um, if, if contemplation is a way of, you know, moving beyond illusion toward truth, then Gandhi's life itself, in it, in all of its activism, um, would be another example of of what this means. Let me let me give you a very a very homey example Please. of, and yet for me a very moving example. Um, I once knew a woman who had a daughter who um, suffered from uh, a very very serious form of developmental disability, and, and her this woman's daughter. Um, could do almost nothing for herself. And so my friend, uh, this woman, um, really had to live two lives. Um, she not only had to eat her own meals, she had to feed her daughter her meals. Um, she not only had to take a walk for herself, she had to help her daughter get around to get some exercise, etc., etc., etc. She didn't have time to go off on a weekend retreat or to take a workshop on meditation. And yet, when I was in her presence, um, I felt uh, something extraordinary, wow. which, which was that in the very experience, in the, in the very active life she led of um, helping her daughter have the fullest life possible, this, this woman had become someone who who understood what it meant to be human hmm. and and to value humanity pure and simple in other words she didn't care about what degrees you had right. or what accomplishments you had or how much money you had or how much status you had all she cared about was the fact that you were a human being and thus worthy of respect her daughter was someone who would never have a degree or an income or an accomplishment in, in the way the world thinks of accomplishment. But in loving her daughter, she had kind of learned to love everyone hmm. around her simply for their humanity. Now, if that isn't world-class contemplative <laughs> right. outcome, I don't know what is. Right. And um, it, it puts... It puts contemplation within reach of all of us, no matter no matter how busy our lives may be. You know, I, I, I sometimes have thought about the strange way in which we use the word disillusionment. Mm. Um, I'm connecting this now to my statement that contemplation is any way you have of penetrating illusion and touching reality. Right. You know, someone comes to us and says, oh, I'm so disillusioned. Our almost automatic response is to put our arms around their shoulders and say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, how can, I, how, how can I comfort you that you're so disillusioned about this or that? What we really ought to be saying is congratulations. <laughs> that means, that exactly. means you've, you, you've, you've lost done it. <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. You're you, you're getting there. You've yeah. lost an illusion, yeah. and that's a good thing. That wow. gets you closer to reality. Yeah. So all I want to know is how can I disillusion you further? Mm -hmm. So you know, <laughs> to, to to help you get even closer to what's 
to what's real. Yeah, it's a it's a tough journey. It's a long journey, but I do think that any form of contemplation worth its salt is going to have that as an outcome. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's going to be the work of my generation, is it not? To to mm. to, to, to push through what isn't real, but because yep. that is the majority of what is sold to us. Yep. Um, yep. And, I mean, how, you know, and I'm, I'm just in my early 30s, but for the younger people that were starting to lead, what encouragement would you give us to, to bring what's real, to, to have dialogue about what's real? I mean, to have a conversation about contemplation with someone that's 20 years old is probably <laughs> not on their radar in a world of Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, what would your encouragement be to anyone at any age that's leading the generation coming after them to push through, you know, the illusions? Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, I think there are all kinds of ways of, of getting at the simple fact that we all feel better when we're when we sense that we're grounded in reality rather mm-hmm. than floating around yes. in a cloud of illusion. Yes. And so, anyway, we have of opening up that conversation about. You know what is it in your life that feels real and unreal, yeah. and 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 once you get to one place or the other, how does it feel? How do you feel yeah. in that in that place? But I, I can I can actually give you a very particular reference here. There's a there's a book that will be coming out this fall that I think is going to speak to your generation. Um, it's written by a friend of mine named Courtney Martin. Okay. Uh, you can easily find her on the web. She has her own website, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. And this is Courtney's perhaps fourth or fifth book. She's written some very good ones. And this one is called something like The New Better Off. Mm. Now, Courtney is, is 35. Um, she has been very engaged with uh, her generation and generational change. And for years, she's been hearing that her generation is the first generation that will not be better off than their, than their parents hmm. in, in, in the way this society defines better off. But as she's looked around her, she's said, wait a minute, there's a new better off that's emerging yep. where people are valuing things other than my parents' generation valued in terms of, you know, monetary wealth. Right. And, and they're valuing community, they're valuing relationships, they're valuing uh, innovation and creativity, which we desperately need. Um, you know, this is a generation that is not kind of lost in grief over the collapse of the of the old institutions that my generation I'm 77 now that my generation relied on yeah. uh, they're not the younger people aren't lost in grief about that because they never knew anything different mm-hmm. in their in their growing up things were falling apart around their heads as they grew up the the old the old style church for example was gone but in its place people were inventing new forms of religious life, for example, and new forms of family life. 
and new forms of all kinds of things. Well, this is the new better off. Hmm. And I I think when that book comes out, that would be a very uh, concrete uh, resource. Yeah, absolutely. To, to gather younger people around. Absolutely. That's good. I took note of that. Courtney Martin, The New Better Off. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's shift a little bit to hidden wholeness. Um, and you quote the great Thomas Merton, uh, who says, In everything there is a hidden wholeness. And um, you, the gosh, the word picture of the Mobius strip was, I mean, that was such a, a, a door for me to walk through. Um, it made so much sense when you broke it down. And I know it's probably a little difficult to break down without a visual aid. <laughs> um, but can, can you help myself and our listeners kind of understand the concept and, and that metaphor that you were using in Hidden Wholeness about our lives and the Mobius Strip? Sure. And, um, you know, you could, I suppose, with the podcast, you could post a little picture of the Mobius Strip. I sure will. That's, that'll be great. And uh, those who don't know about it will, will see what it is. Um, and, and once they have that visual in front of them, then I'll, I'm going to assume they have that. And uh, they could even push pause and go Google the thing if they want to learn <laughs> a little more about M-O-B-I-U-S, Mobius Strip. Um, about what we're talking about. But what's so interesting about the Mobius Strip uh, is is the fact that it's, um, it's a two-dimensional object that has only one side. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you trace your finger around what appears to be the outside surface of the Mobius Strip, you suddenly and seamlessly find your finger on what appears to be the inside of the Mobius strip, and you keep moving that around, and you suddenly and seamlessly find yourself on what appears to be the outside surface of the Mobius strip. And the, the ultimate message of the Mobius strip is there ain't no inner and outer. <laughs> um, it, it's all one. That's right. And uh, and so the good. two the two keep keep co-creating mm. each other. Mm. And when I when I saw that shape Ashton and began to understand its implications I thought well that's exactly like like life itself and the way in which it's like life itself I I think I can express this way Um, day by day as we live our lives we are making decisions about what to bring forth from inside of us to put into the so-called outside world Mm -hmm. Um, so in this conversation, I, I could put forward my anger, or I could put forward my grief, or I could put forward all kinds of negativity. I, I, you know, I could be suspicious about who you are or what the intent of this program is, mm-hmm. and um, put that in into the world. And as I do so, I, I help create a lesser world. Um, in 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 a small but measurable, palpable way, or I can choose to stand in a different place inside myself as you and I are talking, can stand in the assumption that both you and I and and your listeners, you know, want uh, a better world. We want a more humane world. We want a more caring, compassionate world. We want a more just. Uh, world, 
And I can, operating on that sense of faith and fellow feeling, I can I can bring forth something that might make the world just a tad better yeah. um, as we as we explore it together. And then in a, in a so at that moment of emerging from from what we call the inner life into what we call the outer life, um, I'm helping to co-create the, the world that's out there. And then if you continue around the Mobius strip of my life, the world, the, the so-called outer world, throws things back at me or responds to me in some way. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, as you know, you can put good stuff out and get very cynical yeah. or hateful, hurtful responses. But at that point, I have, I then have decisions to make, choices to make about how I internalize whatever the world throws back to, and and whether whether I you know grab it like a weapon and throw it back mm. to where it came from, or whether I find some way to absorb it and move beyond it. Mm. You know the old idea that the pain stops here right. um, is is a choice that I that I have to make. Um, or I can multiply the pain in the world by mm-hmm. putting out the hurt part of myself in a kind of angry quest for retribution. So, you know, day by day, minute by minute, we are making decisions about that inner-outer exchange, that inner-outer co-creation. And we're not only um, co-creating the world, but we're co-creating ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's uh, and it's all about choice making at those at those points of exchange. So there's there's certain ways in which my spiritual life revolves around um, a, a simple but challenging question, which is which is how how might I at every point of exchange between inner and outer um, how might I become so aware of the of the significance of the choice I'm making that I can, on balance, uh, make choices that are more life-giving than death-dealing wow. um, for myself and for the world. Can you repeat I, that question I, again? How, how, sure. How can I become so, aware? Yeah, so how can I become aware at, at every point of, of um, exchange between my inner life and the world around me um, become so aware of the, of the significance of the choices I'm making that I can, on balance, uh, make choices that are more life-giving than death-dealing. And I say on balance because I think an important part of life is is forgiving ourselves Mm -hmm. for the ways we screw up Mm -hmm. at at those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I have my own moments of expressing anger or resentment, I need to cut myself smack about that, and if I do that, I'm less likely to get locked into that anger or resentment, and I'm more likely to go to the other person, or the other whoever that may be, and say, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. will you forgive me? Mm-hmm. Can we can we reboot this conversation yeah. or this relationship? Because... I, I'm, I, it, that was my bad. You mm. know. 
Wow, you, you beautifully broke that down. Some of the some of the words I was hearing, maybe some themes of the Mobius strip are awareness, um, faithfulness. Uh, you've said once before, our faithfulness has to trump our effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, w- would you say that th- this is staying faithful to our true self? Is being on the on the Mobius strip. I mean, help hold my hand and walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk for a minute about this whole effectiveness faithfulness dynamic, because I do think it's significantly related mm-hmm. to life on the Mobius strip. Right. So we live in a culture that puts almost all of its money on being effective. You know, we're we're constantly being asked. Are you getting results? Are you are you getting bottom line outcomes? Um, and we, I understand the importance of that, and you understand the mm-hmm. importance of that. I mean, you're doing this work um, uh, on the web and with your podcast. Um, I'm a writer, and I founded a non nonprofit organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which is carrying my ideas into the world. Um, It's become a fairly large organization with 300 facilitators around this country and in other parts of the the planet um, who are working with people in the serving professions uh, all the time. And, uh, you know, I want all of that to be effective, right? I want that to have an impact, no question about it. But Here's my here's my deep conviction, and I think again this is a simple reality statement. It's not a belief statement. That my simple the reality is that the the higher the values you you strive to live by, if you live try to live, for example, in support of the spread of love, truth, and justice. Um the more it becomes impossible, absolutely impossible, to imagine that at the end of your life you're going to be able to say, I'm sure glad I took on you know, the pursuit of love or truth or justice, because, since, because having done so, everyone in the world can check that off their to-do list <laughs> forevermore. <laughs> you know, yeah. but... Uh, you know, Gandhi wasn't able to die that way. Martin Luther King wasn't able to die that way. Mm-hmm. Jesus wasn't able to die that mm-hmm. way. Moses wasn't able to die that way. Uh, nobody ever has, because those are jobs that will never be fully accomplished. We each are called to make our own contribution in our own time without expecting ultimate effectiveness. Mm-hmm. What what happens if we cling to the norm of effectiveness? It, I think is very simple and again very obvious. It's just reality. If we cling to effectiveness as the only standard of our work, then we're simply going to take on smaller and smaller tasks mm-hmm. because they're the only ones that you can be effective with. Wow. Forget love, truth, and justice. <laughs> they're too big. Um, I, the best example I can give you is education, mm-hmm. public education in this country. We are no longer interested in educating a child because that goes on forever, 
It has to be tailored to each individual. It requires um, immense effort, and it's often frustrated by the life circumstances that that child lives in. So we're no longer interested in educating a child. We're simply interested in getting kids to pass tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the same thing. Right. Uh, and in fact, imagining that there's some sort of equation between educating a child and getting a kid to pass tests is, is ruining a lot of lives, right. ruining kids' lives, ruining teachers' lives, ruining the quality of education. So my point is very simple. If we're going to, if we're going to um, live lives of meaning, we need a standard that precedes effectiveness. I'm not asking us to toss effectiveness out. It has to be in the mix. Right. But ultimately, I think the standard that we have to live by is faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean very simply and straightforwardly. Faithfulness to our own gifts, faithfulness to our own perception of the needs around us within our reach, and faithfulness to the opportunity to bring my gifts into relationship to those needs when there is a fit uh, and a chance to make a difference. So I'm 77, and at age 77 you realize that you don't have forever to live the way you thought you did when you were 30 or 40. Um, and I'm very clear that at the end of the road, um, if I can say um, to myself, within my limitations and fallibilities, I was more or less faithful to my gifts, to the needs I saw around me, and to the intersection between the two, I think I will be able to die with a sense of satisfaction hmm. that I lived my life in a meaningful manner. If I cling to effectiveness, you know, did I set out to achieve love, truth, and justice? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's when you fall into despair, or that's when you just take on something easy, Mm -hmm. like getting kids to pass tests. Right. Wow. Man, what, what a massive, massive shift. What a massive, massive idea just there, the tighter we cling to effectiveness, the smaller and smaller tasks we will take on. Yeah, I think wow. it's. I think the evidence is all around us, and um, I think we're so blinded by this notion that we got to get results that people everywhere are just dropping the big jobs in favor of the little ones. Mm-hmm. I just in my notes here, I just wrote in quotes: "Is this small?" Like as, as a reminder, I'm going to take with me to ask in my interactions, in my moments, in my days, is this small or can we go bigger? You know, mm-hmm. can, can we um, stay faithful on the Mobius Strip? Wow. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Um, so let's talk about then uh, the, the Mobius Strip is, is the place where we become or where we are integrated. Um, and you, in Hidden Wholeness, you kind of you call it backstage and onstage, soul and role, um, true self, false self. What what practices have you had that have kept you integrated? Um, have have kept you on that Mobius strip, not falling off and on it? Do you have any practices there? Mm-hmm. Well, 
you know, first of all, I think, you know, falling off the Mobius strip or falling away from from any and all of the things that I'm talking about um, is 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 pretty much part of what it means to be human, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we right. we we um we have we have visions and values. We have norms about standards about how we'd like to live, and because we are finite creatures with weaknesses of one sort and another, we we often fall away. I've always loved the old story about the guy who spent many, many years of his life living downhill from from an, uh, a, an old monastery without ever inquiring into what was going on up the hill. So one day he walks up the hill and he knocks on the gate and the, the abbot you know, answers the knock and this fellow says, you know, I don't mean to bother you, but um, I'm, I'm, I've, uh, I'm just wondering what, what do you guys do in there? <laughs> and the, the abbot says, well, it's really pretty simple. We get up and we fall down. We get up and we fall <laughs> down. We get up and then we fall down. That is the path. Uh, <laughs> it really is. So, Again, I'm a big believer in forgiveness, self-forgiveness. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I, I think if we aim to forgive others, it's just not going to happen if we can't forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. falling away or falling off this stuff is, um, is pretty common and needs to be understood as part of the equation. Um, I, I think that staying, staying true to it, um, again, I would go back to solitude and community. Mm. Um, solitude is, is enormously effect, uh, important, I think, because we're often so busy, so engaged with whatever it is we're doing in the world that uh, we don't even know how we're feeling about, let's say, the lack of congruence between soul and role. Yep. Um, between yep. the imperatives of our soul and the way we're playing out our lives in the world. Um, I mean, I know, you know, I remember when I was growing up, there was a there was a, a commercial on for some sort of painkiller. It was like Excedrin or one of these, you know, aspirin substitutes, whatever they are. And back in the in the day, there. It, it showed this woman who was suffering from this terrible, terrible headache, and this the brownie troop was just leaving her house, you know. And she says, "Oh, every Wednesday afternoon, you know, I, when the brownie troop leaves, um, all these grade school girls, um, I just have the most terrible headache, but Excedrin saves my life, you know." And even as a kid, I'm looking at that and thinking, "Well." Oh, Dump the brownies. I mean, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's maybe that's not your work. <laughs> right, right. If if these kids are giving you a headache, maybe you're giving them a headache too. <laughs> and don't don't try to medicate yourself out of it. Find something that's yours to do. Oh, that's good. Well, you know, I think as as silly as the example is, there there are lots of parallels mm-hmm. in the lives we live. Yep. And we find some way to self-medicate hmm. when, in fact, we ought to dump the brownies, right? Well, 
Um, yes. And and so um, in solitude, I think you have a chance. The water has a chance to settle out, and you can see, oh, I get it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I, I need to be picking up some other load yep. that is is the kind that that I have the strength to lift, yeah. or I'm gifted to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then in community as well, again, we're 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 totally capable of self-deception. Yeah. And so community, again, whether it's one or two people or more, can help us, help bring us back to to true north. Mm-hmm. I'll just say one one quick thing that your that your listeners might be interested in is that they might want to check out the work of this nonprofit I founded called the Center for Courage and Renewal, absolutely, which is on the web at www.couragerenewal.org. Um, CourageRenewal.org, and because the 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 um, one way of putting our mission very simply is we help people who are doing heavy lifting in this society to rejoin soul and role, mm. um, and these are for people like K through 12 teachers and physicians and clergy and nonprofit leaders and many others um, who. Who have this sense that, you know, my soul is out of alignment yep. with my role. Yep. You know, this is the physician who's saying, my soul is really wrapped around the Hippocratic Oath. But the health care organization I work in has rules that have me right on the edge of violating my Hippocratic Oath three hmm. or four times a week. Hmm. Um, I've got to do something about this. Yeah. And bring soul and role into into closer alignment and that's going to mean both inner and outer change yep. on the mobius strip yeah so uh, you know i think there are uh, i'm i'm referring to the center for courage and renewal because i think there's a whole lot on that website about that will illustrate some of the skillful means to 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 help bring yourself into soul role alignment which I think many, many people in our society are looking for. I, I know they are, and I know that for me, three years ago, when the soul and role finally aligned, um, I, I've yet to find the language for what what that has meant to me. Um, mm. It, mm. it, I'm, c- crazy amounts of peace, crazy amounts of joy, um, renewed hope steadfast love like there's there's all these ideas that i have wrapped around it but i'm still just enjoying i'm just enjoying it uh of what happens when you do align at that soul and role level um Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and you you leave being a human doing and you come back to be a human being and then you're allowed to do your doing from your being if that makes sense um that's kind of the best way i can wrap my hands around it so i hope our listeners do go and 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 research what you're doing because um it's it's there and you're doing it and you are the voice in this space uh and they will their lives will be richly blessed by experiencing the the very good and necessary work you and your team have done well i think you 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 your own way of speaking about what happened to you is beautiful and says it very well. 
Well, thank you. Well, um, you, you, let's lead off of this soul role and solitude and community, we, the world of paradox and embracing paradox. You, I think there hasn't been a better voice for me than you in this space. Um, and you, you, you write about it a lot, but help our listeners understand and, and walk us down leaving the world of right or wrong, either or, and embracing the world of, of both and. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, was, that was a big, big idea for me uh, in The Promise of Paradox. Yeah, well, that was The Promise of Paradox was the first book I ever wrote. It's subtitled uh, mm-hmm. A Celebration of Contradictions in the Christian Life. And um, that, you know, some people might find the idea of celebrating contradictions odd, <laughs> but um, I think it's important and powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, as I say in that book, um, if, if, if we don't embrace paradox, I don't know how we ever understand, those of us who are Christian, understand the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I would argue the teachings of most uh, leaders mm-hmm. of the world's wisdom traditions. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was constantly saying things like, "The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Right. Or if if you, you know, if you seek your life, you lose it. If you if you lose if, you, if you, you lose you lose your life, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And, and on and on and on it goes. So how do we understand that if we if we live in an either or world you know and say no wait a minute you're either first or you're last mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. it can't be both and and you know you you either seek your life or you lose your life it can't be both and well there's a nobel prize winning physicist um named Niels Bohr B O H R um who who once said this, and I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful definition of paradox, or it takes us into that force field. So he said, the opposite of an ordinary fact is a lie, but the opposite of one great truth may be another great truth. And you'll notice that he he doesn't say is another great truth, but may be yeah. another great truth. Yeah, so that's beautiful. There's there's still discernment here. We yeah. have to. It's not true that it's not true that all contradictions are paradoxes, but some very important ones are. They're they're sort of simultaneous truths. And you know, one way I've always used to illustrate that is that our bodies practice a very elemental paradox moment by moment. We breathe in, and we breathe out, and then we breathe in, and then we breathe out. And if if any one of us decided, you know what, I think I'm basically a breathing in kind of guy, so (laughs) I'm just going to do that from here on out, rather than breathing out, we know what the result would be if you did before too long. Um, and and I think that when we try to break paradoxes, like the paradox of solitude and community, then we're going to be dead too. Mm-hmm. So, are we were we made for community? Absolutely. Yep. Uh, there's no question about it. You can look at us religiously, or biologically, or sociologically, or ecologically. We were made for community. 
you know, none of us got here without two biological parents. Yep. So we started in community, and none of us got to where we are without the help and support of community, despite the occasional person you met who you meet who is somehow living with with the kind of pathological fantasy that he or she made it all on their own. Right. Um, I'd I'd be willing to bet the farm that that that, that they didn't. Yep. <laughs> Nobody ever has. So, um, you know, were we made for community? Absolutely. That's a great truth, and we dare not forget it. Were we made for solitude? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because if 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 nothing else, if nothing else, all of us at the end of life are going to take a journey called dying that we must take alone. Hmm. Nobody can go there with us. And that's one of the that's that's at least one reason to be practicing solitude um, long before we are compelled to take a journey that's going to require hmm. solitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and take us into deeper and deeper solitude. So here are two great truths about how we are made um, that we must learn to hold together as as both and, yeah. rather than either or. And sadly, in, in Western culture, either or is the normal logic. It's the way of thinking about things. Yeah. It's either this way or it's that way. It's either true or it's false. Um, you can't have it both ways. Well, there are times when you not only can have it both ways, you must have it both ways, mm-hmm. and you must learn to hold that creative force field between what looks like the poles of the contradiction yep. and let it hold you, pull you open to to something larger. Yeah. You know, in in the uh, I work mostly in the secular world, but my root system is in is in Christian tradition. I'm a Quaker, and Quakerism is a, a branch of Christianity. And I often think about the cross, the, that's the central symbol of right. the Christian tradition, which is in its in itself a symbol of of paradox, yep. with horizontal arm arms that. Pull, pull right and left, and, a ver- and vertical arms that pull up and down, and and you can read all kinds of you know meaning into the fact that it's both and in both directions. Yeah. Um, and and you can also read meaning into the fact that there's a a heart of that cross, a crossing point in the middle. Hmm. That if you allow the the pulling to to continue, that that heart opens up, and we enter into. Uh, mm. A new reality mm. that, that that I think is is exactly what happens when we're willing to hold paradox in our own lives. Wow, wow! The paradox stretches left and right. The paradox stretches up and down, and at the heart of it, it open wide. It opens mm-hmm. wide, mm-hmm. and that's where the beauty overflows. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow! That was good. That was real good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Ah, goodness. So, then hold my hand with solitude and community, because in, in Hidden Wholeness, um, you you paint some really beautiful pictures there, and you quote uh, 
and, and per, correct me if I'm pronouncing their name wrong, Rainier Maria Rilke. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that's pronounced right, but you quote her uh, saying, the love that consists in this, that two solitudes protect and border and salute each other. Um, how do we in our communities border, protect, and salute each other in the communities we've chosen? Right, and easy to make the gender mistake with his name. It's he's actually a guy. Oh, it's a male. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Rainer Maria Rilke. Gotcha. And uh, a, a poet um, of, of, uh, who's been translated into English to a great extent, but mm. um, has a lot of stuff in in, uh, in other languages. Um, it's a beautiful idea. It, it, yeah, and he. Uh, he wrote a book called Letters to a Young Poet, which is a very touching book from which this quote comes. And uh, for those who haven't read it, I, I think you'd really enjoy it. He, uh, as a somewhat older poet, a, a young man wrote him uh, who aspired to be a poet. And this book consists of their their exchange of letters over a period of time. And it reveals Rainer Maria Rilke to be a very caring older man who really wanted to mentor this mm. this young man which is i think you know such a great model for older older people but um i've always loved this 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 definition of love um because it's kind of countercultural yeah um he said love love consists in this that two solitudes border protect and salute one another um, and I love that because we we so often think of love in more as a kind of entanglement mm-hmm. with with one another. Mm. And I'm not saying that this is the only good definition of love, yeah. but I'm saying that I think you know at the depth of any meaningful relationship, there is not only the embrace in which we are entangled, whether you mean that, you know, physically or spiritually, psychologically, but there's also the the respect for the mystery within Mm. the other person that requires us to step back and make space for that person's solitude Mm. to be protected, saluted, bordered. Um, in other words, to be held safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I happen to think, and this is again part of the work of the Center for Courage and Renewal, I happen to think that one of the great needs in our world, great unmet needs, is safe space in which the soul can speak its truth. Mm. And we have very little safe space in our society. Uh, yeah. we're, we're in a political season right now where there just isn't any safe space in our public discourse. You know, there's hardly anything you can say on one side or the other of, of an issue, no matter how much civility you say it with, that isn't going to bring you an onslaught of attack yeah. um, from people who disagree. And and what that does, of course, is to shut down political discourse, which is tragic and anti-democratic. But it also happens in our personal lives. Um, 
you know, we, we have very few workplaces where people can say their truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and if we did, we might liberate more energy in human beings yeah. whose, whose, whose greatest need is to be seen and heard as they are for who they are, yeah. rather than feeling like they have to put on a mask every day in order to go to the workplace. So how we border protect and salute each other in the communities we choose to participate in is um, a very big question that I've um, tried in many ways to answer throughout the book, A Hidden Wholeness. And I'll, I'll just pick up a, a small part of that in, yeah. in answering the question here. So the book, A Hidden Wholeness, really is if, if for folks who are interested in what's under the hood at the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, th- this book kind of reveals our our operating code. It reveals how we create circles of trust, safe space for the soul, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'll just give you one example. So we, we normally have, for example, 25 K through 12 teachers or 25 physicians in a circle with a trained facilitator helping them hold safe space. And we work with a poem or a teaching story from one of the wisdom traditions, and it will take a whole morning to explore a single poem hmm. or teaching story in terms of its meaning for our lives. And <clears throat> one of the ways we um, border, protect, and salute each other's solitude is when someone says something that let's say they're they're expressing a problem, an issue, a wrestling match, a grief, a sadness in their own life. We have a ground rule that says no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. Wow. And I remember the very first time in the early 90s, so 25 years ago, that I announced that ground rule to a group of teachers who were about to embark on a two-year journey through eight retreats of three days each. And I said, for two years in these eight retreats, we're going to work with by this ground rule, no, no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. One of the teachers almost screamed, what in heaven's name are we going to do for the next two years? You've just taken away the only things we know how to do. Yeah, our weapons. (laughs) And I said, I laughed, and I said, yeah, I get it, but believe me, I'm serious about this. What we're going to do instead is we're going to listen very deeply, Mm. and we are going to learn the high art of asking people who speak honest, open questions that help hear them and so that they can have a deeper conversation with themselves. Mm. Yep. Believe me, nobody in this circle who has a serious problem needs your answer to their problem. Wow. They need their answer yeah. to their problem. There you go. And it's it's somewhere within them. It's it's in this place called the soul or the voice of the inner teacher. Yep. And the the way we're going to to bring that out is to not try to override that voice, but to ask honest, open questions that uh, help them hear that voice mm-hmm. clearer. And, and we're going to learn how to spot questions before we ask them that are really little advices in disguise. Wow. 
and I would always say, you know, have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest, open question. You know, you, you, it's really a little advice in disguise. Um, <laughs> please see a therapist is really what you ought to say if you want to be honest about that, but that you, you're forbidden from doing it. But if you, if you say to the person, have you ever had a, a difficult situation like this in your life before this time? And they say, yes, well, could you describe that a little bit? Yes, and they do. And then you might ask, did you learn anything at that time that might be of help to you in this situation? You're helping that person with those honest, open questions think deeper into their own life experience and into their own resourcefulness. So that's a concrete example of one way to border, protect, and salute each other's solitude in a way that allows us to access our own inner resources. Right. So border, bordering, protecting, uh, and saluting. We are not fixing, saving, adjusting, or correcting. We're, we're honoring their mystery and honoring their solitude. Right. We're, what we're really doing, I think, Ashton, is we're dropping the—I'm dropping my arrogance that leads me to think that I know what you ought to do. Wow. Wow. And that's community. Yep. <laughs> there, period. Yep. There you go. That's how you define community. Wow. Yeah, absolutely it is. And it's really, really hard to come by because we're so used to thinking of community as, you know, you you bring me my problem. Or, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you bring you me your problem. Um, I give you maybe three or four minutes of listening time. Or if I've been to a listening workshop within the last month, I give you eight or ten minutes of listening time. And then I start telling you what you ought to do about your problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what, what that does, and I think we all know this at some level, that makes you feel unseen and unheard. Mm-hmm. That makes you feel dismissed. And, and partly, you know, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Um, I want to check you off my to-do list, right? Mm-hmm. So I listen to your problem for a few minutes, then I give you my best shot at the an- at an answer. And if you're in- inwardly, I'm thinking, if he's smart, he'll take my advice, <laughs> and and I'm done, and, and and I can check it off my list. If he's not smart and doesn't take my advice, then I. I'm going to check him off my list because he's hopeless. Yeah. Um, and and there there isn't anything more arrogant than that attitude. Right. Wow. And you mentioned it's hard to come by, but I, I started connect, connecting some dots right there that the places I've tried that have tried to fix, save, adjust, or correct me, I now avoid. And then yet the places that have honored the mystery and the solitude, it's where you always want to go back to. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Man, that's huge. And and you and the other thing in hidden wholeness that I loved is that you're not saying that community is 100, 200, 50 people. I mean, we we kind of have to redefine this idea of community because in our lives, you know, between our jobs and our families and all that, you're not going to have this type of at least correct me if I'm wrong you're not going to have this type of interaction with hundreds of people on a weekly basis. Right. Wow. 
So good. Yeah, uh, no, ab- ab- absolutely. And I, and <clears throat> you know, even in even in big churches, for example, where there are hundreds of people, <clears throat> I think wise church leaders have learned that small group settings are the place where church really happens. Yeah. Um, and and so they've created these sort of micro communities within their community, and. That's that's what people value so much about the experience, not only in churches but in synagogues and mosques and other kinds of religious congregations. Yeah, wow, that was beautiful. May we protect, border, and salute. I love that. Um, wrapping up here, one of the great mysteries uh, of our lives is the soul, um, and you in hidden wholeness you liken the soul to a wild animal. And I just have to read this because I sent it to my buddies. I took a picture of the page uh, when I read this because it was such a beautiful metaphor. Um, You wrote, if we want to see a wild animal, we know that the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, yelling for it to come out. But if we walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently at the base of a tree, breathe with the earth, and fade into our surroundings, the wild creature we seek might put in an appearance. We may see it only briefly and only out of the corner of an eye, but the sight is a gift we will always treasure. Uh, but the sight is a gift we will always treasure and is an end in itself. Um, you hit it out of the park on that one. <laughs> so uh, in, in a world of we live in cities with millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, subways, Twitter, Facebook, noise, interacting with people all the time. There's always a way to be connected. How do we experience the metaphor of the soul and the wild animal and the world being like the woods in our personal lives today? And I guess I already know probably where we're going is solitude. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we do need to discipline ourselves to unplug and unwire ourselves. Um, and, it, you know, the solitary experience um, doesn't, doesn't need to be at the far ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we, there are very few places in, in our world that are, that are truly silent anymore. Right. Um, and in cities, that's very hard to come by. But, you know, if, if we're willing to turn off all the devices and all the screens and just create a corner in our apartment or our house or, you know, or even at a coffee shop with with our backs turned to everyone else yeah. um, and, and make that a dedicated space and time for simply sitting quietly with our with our eyes closed and feeling what we feel um, you know without without benefit of music or anything else again unplugging detaching um, I think we can we can get to this place where we uh, have a deeper uh, feel for what's going on mm-hmm. inside of us, yeah. um, and it's you know it's very common to have a lot of stuff going on inside, but never to give ourselves the time or space to try to 
read it or interpret it. Hmm. Um, I, I, I have a vivid memory of of uh, being for a little while uh, when I was a community organizer in Washington D.C. I also picked up um, a part-time job at a university teaching, and the teaching was going very well. Um, I was getting awarded for it and rewarded for it. But every day I went to work um, with with a, an edge of nausea. Mm. And, um, you know, it took me a while to become aware of it. You know, you just, at first you just pop something. You think it must be something I ate. And you take some over-the-counter thing to get rid of it. But then I started realizing that it was persistent. It must not be about what I was eating. Um, it, and, and as I took time to sit with it, I realized that the whole culture and atmosphere of that university was toxic to me. Wow. And I, uh, as much as I might have wanted to um, imagine that I could bring health to that toxicity, I started to understand that was not my gift, that was not my calling, that was not what I was put in this world to do. And I was sickening myself by sticking with a job at which I was successful, but which was running upstream or across mm. the of my soul. Mm. And and so I left it, and that sense of health and well-being began to return. And I'm I've always been grateful for whatever the unconscious wisdom was that says that said stop medicating yourself. And let your let your life speak. Yeah. Learn yeah. from what it's saying. Wow, so so good. Well, you have done that. Um, you have done that so so well. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of us that are so grateful for you pushing against Thank resistance, you. pushing against resistance, and 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 bringing that to the world. It's been such a gift, such a light. I mean, truly, I. Um, some of my notes I've written to myself in the back of these books, I'd, I'd love to share with you sometime because they just, it's one aha after another as I turn your pages. <laughs> well, that, that means a lot, Ashton. Thank you so much. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> you know, I, th- I, think, I think what I'd mainly like to do is to, is to thank my younger self for persisting through all the struggles because, <laughs> well, you well. know, it, it, it wasn't easy. Um, uh, and I just think that there are some things that you can only learn the hard way. Hmm. Uh, and, and I learned a lot of things the hard way. Um, and, and it, without, Without those struggles, without those difficulties and challenges, I don't think I would ever have gotten to some of the insights that I've had that have have provided guidance for me. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I can give you one example, um, a fairly quick example about how how opaque guidance can be at the time, but how later. On you can you understand what it's about. So, I got this PhD from Berkeley. I, 
was a very successful graduate student, you know, honors and all that. I got offers from big-time universities to join their faculty. And I turned my back on all that and became a community organizer in Washington, D.C., because of that feeling called to that work. And it was challenging. I had I was married. I had three young kids. And as a community organizer, I was raising my own salary sort of three months at a time through mm-hmm. foundation grants and, um, you know, local uh, state and federal money which was available in the late 60s and early 70s because of all the social problems that we were dealing with. And people would come to me and they'd say, Parker, people who'd known me over the years, you know, you were were slated for an an academic career. You were very successful as a doctoral student. Uh, uh, You know, you have your PhD, you have these offers. Why are you why are you walking away from all that? You know, you're committing career suicide. Mm-hmm. And the best answer I, I was ever able to give anybody was, all I can tell you is that I can't not do it. Wow. Um, th- those words came mm-hmm. to me very powerfully. I can't not do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Th- that Can I say that I'm crazy wild about taking this sort of risk? No. Can I say that I'm crazy wild about raising my own salary three months at a time rather than being on someone's payroll? No. Can I say that I'm crazy wild about disappointing my mentors and, you know, people who had invested in me going in a different career direction? No. All I can say is I can't not do it. And I really don't know where that came from, but I'm absolutely convinced, looking back, that it's what I would now call the soul's imperative. Um, and yeah. and the, the nausea I felt when I was you know, going to that university job every day, which I picked up about halfway through the community organizing because it was only part-time, mm. and it would, you know, it would help, help pay the rent and put a little more food on the table, the nausea I felt was actually my soul speaking also. Wow. Um, you know, I, I could write a book called Let Your Nausea Speak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, um, I wow. just want to thank my younger self for, for, you know, being willing to follow leads that I didn't even understand yeah. at the time but they were so strong, they were unmistakable. Man, something tells me that's going to free a lot of our listeners. Hear, hearing you, the soul's imperative, I, I have to do this, I can't not do this, but that didn't mean that it, it, it didn't mean that it was just a hair frightening. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, exactly. It was very frightening. And, um, you know, I felt like I was letting down my mentors, and I felt like I was mm. likely to disappear from the radar yeah. um, and so forth and so on. Um, but it, it, it was just guidance that I had to follow, and of course, looking back, I'm awfully glad I did. Yeah. I mean, if I can be perfectly frank, which I like to be, because, <laughs> because that's like, you know, saying it like it is, 
I, I grin sometimes looking back, thinking, if I had signed on at a university and risen through the ranks in a sociology department, A, I would not have written the books I've written because they don't get you anywhere in the sociological profession. Um, you know, they don't want me to, they don't, they're not going to promote me with books on spirituality right. and different topics like vocation and community and so forth. They want, they want hardcore research. Um, and even if I had written the books I'd written, I just don't think that that, that many people would be as interested in somebody who'd risen through the ranks of assistant, associate, and full professor at a conventional university as they as they seem to be in a guy who's had a really weird, windy path mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, has, you know, can write about experiences that I never would have had embedded in a conventional institution. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do it you know, in order to become interesting. I did it because I couldn't not do it. But I think that the honest truth is that I probably became more interesting as a writer because I followed a twisty path. But whether or not that had happened, one thing I know for sure is that I've lived a life that was a lot more interesting to me than the options that I rejected at the time. Wow, wow. And and that's not, let me just be really, really clear. I've got lots of wonderful, wonderful friends who followed a more conventional path and did wonderful work. Sure. That was their gift. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't mine. Right. It wasn't mine. So this is not like, you know, like yeah. um, universally <laughs> recommended advice. Yeah. It was your this path. is just my my story. Yeah, your story. I your love path. hearing other other people's stories. Wow, man, that's that's just a meal in itself, right there. Your answer to that. <laughs> um, so uh, to wrap up, you know, let the music play. This podcast, the hope here is that we we just ask a big question: How, how are we making music with our lives? How are we leaving the world of noise and being a contribution to the world? Uh, how are we making music? And we define the music as the experience that is heard, felt, and seen, and the story that unfolds when one's divine identity, core consciousness, and God-gifting comes together, comes alive, and crescendos in the universe we exist in. Um, in closing, what wh- what do you want your music to be? Mm. Well, it's a great question, and I, I love the musical musical metaphor i was actually listening to some music before you mm. you called um the um and i work with a musician named carrie newcomer that but that's a that's a, a topic for another day sure we uh, we've actually written some songs together that she's recorded oh beautiful um so you know i i think I think my best answer to this is that um, I have to let I have to let the audience, as it were, um, decide what it is they've heard, hmm. because it's in you know in, in in this kind of music, it's not always clear that um, that one. 
plans and intentions are fully delivered to the listener yeah. and they what i what i actually love about writing books is that some of the people who end up loving some of my books are people whose lives are so incredibly different from mine hmm. that I could not ever have imagined that what I wrote would speak to them. Well. But, I mean, here I am. You know, I was raised a sort of upper upper middle class guy. I'm white. I'm male. I'm well-educated. I'm, you know, I'm one of the people that this society was made to work for, right? Hmm. And a book like Let Your Life Speak, I'm straight. I, a book like Let Your Life Speak has attracted a very large audience among uh, gay and lesbian people, among African-American females, and among other people, who people in the business world, hmm. whose, whose lives are so utterly different from mine that had you asked me when I when I published the book, will it have an audience in those demographics, as they say, I would have said, no way. Well, I mean, why would it? Well, um, it would be great if it did. That would thrill me. But what could they possibly find of interest in what a guy like me has to say? Well, one of the huge blessings of my life is that my writing has brought me into touch with all kinds of, quote, otherness, which, of course, the closer you get to it, you realize isn't otherness at all. It's, it's our shared humanity. Yeah. And I, I feel so blessed by that gift of, uh, of writing or music that crosses the lines that I'm, I just eagerly await, you know, the next, what, the next chorus, whatever it may hmm. be, or the bridge or, hmm. or the verse, yeah. um, to see what it's going to be like and who might hear it and how they might hear it. Hmm. Um, so I think I just have to keep playing the music I play, which I, I would like to think has evolved over time, that I've become more, I hope, proficient with my instrument. Um, and then I have to wait for people to say, this is what we heard. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy with that arrangement. Wow. So, so good. So, so inspiring. Um, thank you. I mean, I, I, I hope you understand and can feel the gratitude from here. Uh, oh, I certainly can, and I'm very grateful for it, Ashton. Yeah, this has been... For the work you're doing. Yeah, what a beautiful... I'm just kind of covered in chill bumps right now. Um, thank you so much for for this opportunity. Um, to, to find you, you've mentioned CourageRenewal.org. Is that where you would have our listeners go to research you and research what yeah. you're doing? That's certainly that's certainly one place, uh, the Center for Courage and Renewal, and there is a, a tab there on the home page that has my name on it that you can click on and <clears throat> find out more about me, my work, and my relation to the organization. And then I have my own Facebook 
author page, yep. which you can find by just pulling up your own Facebook page and putting my full name, Parker J. J. Period Palmer, uh, into the search bar, and you'll get to me very quickly. And welcome, I would absolutely welcome folks there. Um, I post a couple of times a week, often poetry that I'm reading with brief reflections on it and have a wonderful audience with whom I'm often in dialogue on that page. Beautiful. Beautiful. We will put that in our show notes uh, and on the blog and make sure that everyone has connected uh, to that. I'll just just mention one other thing. If you go to Amazon.com and search my name, you'll, you'll find a the nine books I've written, and I'm I'm especially eager for people to know about my latest book, which is called um, Healing the Heart of Democracy, right. Healing the Heart of Democracy, in this political season when I think we need a lot of healing and a lot yeah. of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Go to Amazon, support Parker, find his words. Your life will be absolutely reshaped, shaken, and put on such a new beautiful path. Um, thank you thank again. You, thank you again, Parker, for joining us. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Yes, sir. Hope we cross paths soon. You bet. Right, As always, if you did enjoy this episode, remember to share it with those you love and those you lead. You can find it again, as always, at ashtongustafson.com or in iTunes by searching Ashton Gustafson or Let the Music Play. And as you approach this week, Remember to pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be loved.